0: Good evening, take your Bibles this evening and let's turn to Acts chapter 21 as we continue our journey, looking at really now Paul's journey here uh, as he makes his way to Jerusalem. So it's good to be with you, I appreciate the opportunity for sure. Uh, why don't we just take a minute, and ask the Lord to bless this time. And uh, we'll try to truck through some of these verses tonight, okay? So if we were in Grace Bible Day Camp, I would make seatbelt uh seatbelt noises and seatbelt things, but I won't do that. Um, and Rick says, good. Yeah, that's where, they, that's where I really exist most, best, so making those kind of noises and signs. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful uh, just for your goodness. Uh, To us, as even we sang this evening. Fathers, we look here at a pivotal chapter, turning point, really, in the Apostle Paul's life. Lord, that you impress upon us the truths that the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate through uh, these men and through Luke in particular. Lord, that that would uh, motivate us and transform us uh, again and anew to a walk worthy. As we uh, turn around and leave this place for another week of service uh, for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you got a text from someone you trusted saying, very cryptically, stay away from the mall, what would you do? Well, if you're like me, you'd be like, that's no problem. I don't ever go there. Anyway, unless it's Christmas, and then you've got to do your last-minute Christmas shopping, and then that would be a problem. Well, what if it was a, a no-name number? You know, you sometimes have you ever gotten a text from a number that wasn't in your phone, and and it's just evident that uh, they, they have the wrong number? Uh, probably just kind of dismiss it. But if you were like me and you had a friend in the secret service and his caller ID showed up on the text and he said, stay away from the mall tonight, what would you do? I'd stay away from the mall. I'd stay very far away and then I'd tell everybody I loved, (laughs) don't go by the mall. Well, uh, this this is kind of an interesting chapter where Paul, really up until this point, I feel a little loud, guys. Can you lower me a little bit? Sound booth, you're not, can you lower me a little bit? I feel a little loud, and I tend to really get loud, and I don't want to do that, so kind of lower me a little bit, please, thank you. Um, you'd go, and 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 you'd stay away, uh, but Paul here, really in Acts chapter 21, um, is, is not staying away. Now, he's not going to the mall. He's been told, really, if you kind of flip a few verses back in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city. So everywhere Paul is going, right, uh, he's been warned about what awaits him in Jerusalem. and So that's really the, the context that we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 21. Um, and so the the, the the main question really comes up, you know, as you're reading through this, Paul, why do you need to go to Jerusalem so badly? Why do you need to go to Jerusalem so badly? What is up with you? Do you have a death threat? You know, why do you want to go? A death wish? Why do you want to go to Jerusalem? He even says in verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, but I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul was convinced that he needed to go to Jerusalem. And I think as we kind of unpack this chapter a little bit, we're gonna see just why that is. And I'm gonna state my conclusion for you up front so it could be helpful as we try to unpack. These verses together I, I think I think as we if we could ask the question what is worth Paul's life I and mean, that's really what's at stake make no mistake about it he's been told and we'll see it here in Acts chapter 21 again as well as in other places leading up to Acts 21 you will be bound you will be afflicted in Jerusalem what is worth ultimately your life Paul that you must go to Jerusalem. So that's really the the theme that the narrative here is trying to get across. And I would submit to you tonight that it is the unity of the church that is worth Paul's life. It's the unity of the church, after all, that is worth Jesus' life. And so Paul is consumed... With the reality of the unity of the church, and so a spirit-filled unity produces effective gospel ministry, and that's really where where we're going to land the plane tonight as we look at these uh, these verses. That a vibrant church, a growing church, a thriving church, the normal church is a unified church, and right up front, I. I just want to just say praise the Lord, that I think that at Grace Church of Menor we are, by far, in a way, a spirit-unified church, that we enjoy the, the privileges and the responsibilities that come with walking in the spirit, and we are a unified group. Uh-huh. But that's not always the case uh, in Acts. It's not always the case as you leave Grace Church of Menor and you look around at other local churches. And that certainly doesn't mean that at times we don't have our disagreements, even within leadership or uh, within the, the greater body of, of Grace Church of Menor. But we are all spirit filled and pursuing the unity of of his church. And so how does that happen and and what are the 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 aspects of a ministry that is that is unified. Well I'd like to submit three of them in the text this evening and the first one really is that the church's unity is a result of its spirit-filled motivation. It's spirit-filled motivation it's it's always motivated unto gospel purposes unto accomplishing the gospel ministry. And look with me and uh, let's just read verses 1 through 8 to kind of get our bearings a little bit here in Acts chapter 21. When we had departed, uh, or parted from them, and whether or not Luke is actually traveling is a a question for debate here. Uh, But there were seven other men that were with Paul, and we'll see those men here in a little bit. But when we had parted from them, uh, that is the elders really in Miletus, They came over because Paul, uh, uh, from Ephesus, they came over to Miletus because Paul was really in a hurry, and we'll see that in a little bit, to get to Jerusalem. But when we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Padera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Boy, that sounds familiar, right? When our days were there, uh, there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city after kneeling down on the beach and praying We said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and then returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we had arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, a a familiar figure, who was one of the seven, from Acts chapter 6, we stayed with him. Boy, Paul gets around, doesn't he? And why does Luke give us these details? This isn't the first time he's given us his journey details. Why does he do that? Well, I I think Luke really wants, through uh, the Holy Spirit through Luke, really wants to get across um, that unity, and we're going to see kind of how unity ties in here, that unity really, really is produced or accomplished through a, a right motivation. Through a right motivation. It is a gospel motivation. You look at Kos, Rhodes, patera, Phoenicia, he passes Cyprus and Syria, he lands in Tyre, he spends seven days there, he goes to Talmaus, he goes to Caesarea unto Jerusalem. And what is he doing in all these places? Well, in many of these places, except from the voyage from Patera to Tyre, he spends one night because the The ship is a smaller ship, most likely, and it's kind of hugging the coast and visiting uh, each of these cities. And we see his pattern in Ptolemaeus. He looks up, right, in verse uh, verse, uh, number 5, I think, or 4, excuse me. Well, that's 4 is Tyre. Later on uh, in Ptolemaeus, verse 7, they look up and they stay with the brethren. They're finding the church wherever it goes. This time, the Gospel has already gone through this area. This is kind of the, the Judea, unto the Samaria, but this is kind of the Judea area still. And so the Gospel is really making progress and, and we're now counting how the Gospel is physically, geographically spreading and has no boundaries or no, no barriers. In fact, not just here in Acts 21, but in all of Paul's travels, uh, some estimate that he traveled over 15,000 miles. How many of you have traveled 15,000 miles for the gospel's sake? Without a car. Without, you know, an airplane. Some say that's about half and half, maybe a little bit more, uh, on a ship, and a, or a little bit more on land, and, and about seven by, by sea. But nonetheless, I think we can't overlook the fact that Paul is a motivated man. And what is he motivated in? <laughs> Wherever he goes, right? The gospel. The gospel. It really is a shining picture reaching all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, right? We just had an Acts 1-8 update. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the othermost. Paul is a man who is consumed with accomplishing gospel ministry because he is a spirit-filled man with a spirit-filled motivation. And we see that it doesn't just cross geographic or physical boundaries, but it also crosses the ethic, the social, the ethnic, excuse me, the social, the cultural boundaries. You know, there's no purer motivation for unity than what you and I have in the church. If you think about it for a second, our culture, right, strives, fights for unity. It's an actually, you know, that's so ironic, right? But they, they are fighting right now for unity. I mean, I don't want to get too political, but if you turn on any political news channel for any length of time, you, you get the idea that there is a fight going on. And, and their claim is they want unity, but it is a divisive, vicious fight. And it is a fight in ideology. It is a fight of man versus man isn't it and there really is you know no clear winner because it's a man versus man fight but the the motivation of our unity that we possess possess as the church through the spirit is is the true unity it's not A man versus man, it's not an ideology. It is a unity that unifies man with God himself. And so that's that's the only way that true unity is ever accomplished. Because it's not man versus man, but it is all of men unified with the God of heaven. And I think Philip illustrates uh, this remarkable unity. We see him in verse number 8, Philip the evangelist. He was one of the seven. Remember, you don't have to turn there, but you go back to Acts chapter 6 in your own time, and he was a Hellenistic Jew. That just meant that he was really a Greek culture, a Greek-speaking Jew. And the other six were essentially Hellenistic Jews as well. And what was their task? I mean, um, besides, uh, was it Nicholas? I think it is. Uh, Besides Nicholas, who was a, a proselyte, um, so he, he wasn't a Jew by birth at all. Right? But the other six were, were, were Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. And what, were they, what was their task in Acts chapter 6? To help. To help the widows. To help specifically make sure that the Hellenistic widows weren't overlooked in the distribution of, of bread and of necessities. Acts chapter 6 brings about seven men to help so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the word. Why? Why does that even exist? Why does Acts chapter 6 exist? Because they were all starting to get disunified. Unity was at stake. And guess what? At that time, the church was made up of one ethnic group. One the Jews. And they couldn't get along. Spirit filled? Yeah. Remarkably spirit filled in Acts. But they couldn't get along. And so in starts to creep this unity. And Philip is is one who who sees the importance of helping and and claiming uh Spirit-filled unity to arrest and direct the church's attention. He was an evangelist. The text says here. Well, why is that? Well, probably it's helpful to, you know, uh, make sure that we understand that we're not talking about Philip the apostle. But it's also because Philip had the gift of evangelism. That's pretty certain. He went and he was the first to take the gospel to Samaria in Acts chapter eight. He. Uh, led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord further on in Acts chapter 8. Man, can you get any further from a Jewish context than an Ethiopian eunuch? He was black. He was castrated, which was against the law according to Deuteronomy chapter 23. He wasn't really prohibited from the law sense to come into uh, to the worship. The temple or in the synagogue in that, at that point. So the gospel doesn't know these ethnic, these social, these cultural boundaries. Paul puts it plainly throughout his epistles in Galatians. He says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Colossians, he repeats that. Romans, he says that. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. You can't read most of Paul's letters and not understand that Paul is trying to get across the point that unity is the byproduct, the non-negotiable byproduct of being a spirit-filled church. We see that in Paul's letters like in Titus chapter 2, where you and I really exist today. I mean, most of us, there's, there's maybe one or two actual Jews in our midst. But most of us are Gentiles, so in, in that sense, it's pretty easy to get along. But Titus chapter 2 kind of weaves in the reality that the older and the younger are to, to not just get along, but to thrive and to learn and to follow. Ephesians chapter four and First Corinthians chapter twelve, Romans chapter twelve, we get the, the understanding that it's that, that our abilities, though diverse, really serve to unify and 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 weave a beautiful symphony of expression to glorify God, to continue effectually ministering to each other through the different gifts that we've been given. So, how do we seek an effective gospel ministry, not only with those inside, through age, through ability? I think we, we have some instruction there. And Pastor Tim, really, in 1 Thessalonians, has done a, a remarkable job of reminding us of just the, 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 the kind of love and fellowship and unity that we need for each other. But I think this unity is birthed in the church and then magnified outside of her. So how do we effectively minister the gospel to those outside the church? Not in a a spiritual unity sense, uh, but but unto uh, the the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Take your Bibles just for a second and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As we're looking at the the proper motivation, the spirit-filled motivation, we see that That this motivation accomplishes gospel ministry. And I think there's there's a pretty clear passion on Paul's heart. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, I think Paul demonstrates that the unity that we have as a church ought to be a, a practical unity that we have with those. And I say practical, and I think you'll understand what I mean in a second. Those outside the church. In other words, our testimony and our relationships with those outside the church. So Pastor Steve, how can, we, how can we do that? How can we have a, a unity with those who are so opposite of the gospel? Well, I think Paul's calling for it a practical, in a practical sense. And, and here's where I think we see his heart woven in, uh, certainly, I think we can bring this into Acts chapter 21, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9, remember, Paul's visiting uh, place after place after place, and where, this, where, where, this, where the, the, the church already exists, he is building and unifying the church, and where it didn't exist earlier in Acts, he is out, as Pastor Tim said this morning, planting, 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 and how does he do that? What's the, what's the overall motivation behind that? Well, here it is. I, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're finally going to get to it. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. And what's that that's linked to the gospel in verse 18? Verse 20. To the Jews I became a Jew. Well, that's interesting because Paul already <laughs> was a Jew, wasn't he? What does he mean? Well... He just means that he's going to go ahead and he's going to do some things that Jews do. And there are certain things that Jews do. And so Paul's going to do them. So that I might, what? Win Jews. It's all about the gospel. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law. And there's his qualification. Right? In other words, I'm not under the law for salvation or for righteousness. Right? That's what the that's what a, an Orthodox, that's what a Jew would be. Right? But, but but Paul can stay clean. He can partake of clean things. He can do what the Jews do to, so that he can he can so that he might win, for the gospel's sake, the Jews. So that I might win those who are under law. Verse 21 to those who are without law, in other words, a Gentile. As without the law, so I can be a Gentile, if I need to be a Gentile to win you. Does Paul not have a backbone? What's going on? This doesn't sound right. Well, it's the motivation that's behind it. As without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. There's his qualification again, right? He's not throwing out what he knows. That Christ is salvation. He's not going to walk into some... To some idol-worshipping Gentile service and, and, and worship many gods. That's not what he's advocating. He's just saying there are times that there are things that I can do like a Gentile as long as I follow the law of Christ so that I might, what? Win those who are without the law. To so the weak I became weak. You can insert pastor's sermon in Romans. So that so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may, may, may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. And so what's Paul's point? I, I, I think this is where I can maybe help clarify. This is what I mean by practical unity. Paul is looking for common ground wherever he can go for the gospel's sake. And that's important because Paul's traveling an awful lot. And he's motivated by one thing. That I might win. That I might win. That I might win. And so the question really comes up in, in our time is, how do we translate that I might win? That I might win. Some of you are are, are, are wrestling at work with the reality that I might win. In our families, that I might win someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. In our neighborhoods, that I might win. I think we also have to be very careful that as we, as we seek practical unity, that we do that wisely. I think there's a, a few ways that we might be good to remind ourselves how to do that wisely. Maybe one is social media. Do your posts reflect the spirit-filled motivation wherever you go? Paul had to travel 15,000 miles. You can tweet something out and maybe almost have as many as much of an influence. Or Facebook. And my friends if you get onto those platforms and there's any little bit of, of political agenda in them, I'm just going to out say it, okay? You, you, you alienate 50% of your gospel ministry. I don't know how else to say it. Now, you can have your ideas about all the things that people are fighting about but I'm just asking you, what is your motivation? Oh, that our motivation would be so (laughs) strong that we would travel by foot 15,000 miles so that I might win in our conversations. Well, Pastor Steve, you understand that there's there's a certain agenda that's against the gospel, and there's a certain agenda that, that really lack of a better term marries the gospel somewhat well. Well, sure. But a political stance will never, ever, 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 ever win someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. But talking to them about Jesus will. Amen. right? And so I praise the Lord that most of us when we look through our our Facebook feeds or our Twitter or whatever it is, let's just be careful. Let's consider in our conversations. I'm not saying that you can't have opinions, but be mindful that your opinions can can cut off 50% of your effective ministry. You know, the same thing maybe not into the political or environmental or, or, or whatever you know, topics you want to get into, but what about the Woe is Me book you know, instead of Facebook? Right? I mean, I, I honestly am... am I, I don't think that this is a problem in our church, just like I don't think the, the political tweets and, and those sort of things are a problem in our church. Uh, but I, I see Christians... Thankfully, not from our church that really treat Facebook like the "Woe is Me" book. And <laughs> what kind of what kind of God are we communicating? Sure, we can share prayer requests, and, and you ought to. And well, let's just make sure that they're in proportion to who the God of Heaven is like in your life. Are we communicating the nature of God? And and so, uh, just understand that we ought to be. Like Paul, spirit-filled in the motivation to accomplish gospel ministry. And spirit-filled motivation uh, also requires our submission. Our submission. What kind of motivation do we have? We have motivation that's submitted. Look at verse 4 again. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Well, Paul was making his way. He was making his beeline to Jerusalem. And and, uh, and we, we see in, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 16 that uh, he wanted to get, Jerus- get to Jerusalem by the Passover, quite frankly. He even skipped Ephesus, as I mentioned a little while ago, so that he could make better time and get to Jerusalem. But we also see in verse 3 that he landed in Tyre and and then he spent an entire seven days there, and it's partly because they had to unload cargo that he was on a, a, a bigger ship between uh, what is it, Tal, uh, Phoenicia? Uh, well, crossover over Phoenicia, um, Patera to 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 tire uh, tire. And he was on a bigger ship at that point, and he w- he made a four hundred mile journey, uh, and perhaps they were. Uh, ahead of schedule, but Luke makes the point, doesn't he, that, that he spent seven days, this was a man on the run to get to Jerusalem, and he spent seven days entire. He was a remarkably flexible traveler. I mean, his plans changed when he got saved on the road to Damascus, <laughs> right? And then he moved to Acts chapter 13, and he was driven out of Antioch, and from there he went to Iconium and then Lystra, where he was stoned. In Acts chapter 16, he was redirected from Asia Minor. I mean, this is a guy who, who was a flexible man on a flexible journey. He was submitted. His plans were submitted uh, to the Spirit, quite frankly. And not only were his plans submitted, but his person was submitted. In Verses 9 through 14, we really... Uh, pick up on this. Um, Why don't we just read that for context sake. Now this, this man, this is referring to Philip, the evangelist, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You pull my belt off and you do that to me, you got my attention. When we had heard this, we all, we as well, I mean, you don't just get uh, Paul's attention, you get you know, his whole team's attention. As the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound... But even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, and since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, uh, "This, remarking this will, uh, the the will, excuse me, of the Lord, be done." So, submission of person—that's really what a a motivated, spirit-motivated person really looks like. He's a person uh, who submitted uh, to the Holy Spirit. And in one sense here, we have the negative of that. People are saying, Paul, don't, what? Go. Don't go. We see the warning in verse 4. We see the warning again in verse 11. We see the pleading in verse 5. We see the pleading again in verse 12. Paul, don't go. in verse 13, we see the positive statement of this submission. Paul says, I'm going to (laughs) go. I'm going to go. So then we have to kind of ask the question for a second, who's right, right? I mean, and and even some commentators have some issues here. Uh, But if we get a bigger, fuller context of what's going on, I I don't think there's a a disparity in the Holy Spirit, and I don't think that one group is disobedient, the negative or the positive, Paul, is disobedient. I, I think that we're really seeing... Ultimately, two groups of people, the believers, everybody, and then Paul, (laughs) right? Two groups of people with two vantage points on on trying to submit to the Holy Spirit. You have to remember in verse 4 when uh, the disciples there in Tyre told him. Through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem, that Luke is really sandwiching this between some other times in Acts chapter 20, all right verses 22 through 24, and then later on here, all right in Acts chapter 21 and verse 11, with Agabus, where, where Luke is really sandwiching the narrative of, of what the Holy Spirit is communicating. Verse 4 is the smallest, the shortest, Narration of what is going on with the Holy Spirit and the communication that the Holy Spirit is, is giving about Paul in Jerusalem. Look with me in verses 22 in Acts chapter 20. So the, the chapter before, this was already accounted for by, the, by Luke. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. So Paul says he is bound by the Spirit. In other words, he knows through the Holy Spirit that this is the right thing to do, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that the bonds and afflictions await me. That's the objective stance that the Spirit is really communicating. Paul, wherever he goes, Paul, what's going to await you at Jerusalem? Afflictions, right? Bonds, then ultimately death. So that really is the, the greater context. And, and we see that here in verse 11 in chapter 21. Agabus just takes his belt and he says, This is what's going to happen to the person who wears it. There's no command not to go, there's no word from the Lord in that sense. And so, the greater context sheds light on the objective reality of what the Holy Spirit is communicating to Paul. Does that make sense? And how do we know that ultimately? How do we know that these two groups, though different in opinions here, were still unified by the Spirit? Look at verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking what? The will of God. Of the Lord be done. Who's right? The Lord's always right. The Lord is always right. And so why is it, you know, if this were in today's context, why is this not a church split? That's what we would be asking. I think really, ultimately, what's being communicated by those who are not Paul is the emotional response of the reality of what's going to happen to Paul. And I'm not making that up. Go back and look at the text. They, they, they go with Paul right in verse five, the, the wives, the children. They kneel down, they, they're on the beach, they're praying and they say farewell to each other, right? Uh, uh, verse 12, the local residents, they beg him. They weep, verse 13. Uh, he weeps, verse 13. They weep. You go into Acts chapter 20, and the same, the same thing is true. There's an emotional response. It's not a dogmatic imperative not to go. Paul understands that, and they understand that. You know, even in disagreement, those who are walking in the Spirit stay unified. Let that sink in for a second. second. Even in disagreement, those who are walking in the Spirit stay unified. You can't find that anywhere else. Not when the stakes are so high. Can I say, praise the Lord, that in our context, we are strong and we are unified. That doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements. I can speak from an elder level. You know, we're going through a building project. There are times that, you know, there are some disagreements, but we are unified. We are unified. Not in the elder level, but outside the elder level. um, With those who call Grace Church of Men or their church, there are even a little bit of theological nuances. Nothing to to, to be earth-shattering or groundbreaking. But even in some of those disagreements, they're willing to follow the leadership and the Spirit produces unity. That's just what those who are spirit-filled have. They have remarkable unity because they are altogether motivated. Motivated. Unto gospel purposes. Secondly, the the church's unity is demonstrated by spirit-filled relationships. Spirit-filled relationships. You know, this is uh, so true Throughout uh, Acts. Uh, The early church had a single gathering point. That was Jerusalem. Right? We're not going to take time, uh, but but if you go back to Acts chapter 2, you see that they devoted themselves to each other. They shared with each other. This was a daily, day-by-day occurrence. They were taking their meals together. They were unified. And they had interconnected. Relationships. It was easy in Jerusalem. There was no problem for geography. They were all right there. But once, when the, when the gospel starts to make its way out, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost, Paul really exemplifies here that spirit-filled relationships remain interconnected relationships. And we can't really line up the Sunday morning series and that point enough. God just did that. You know, as Pastor Tim's been talking about the Thessalonian church and, and how everywhere we go that there's, there's got, there ought to be interconnected relationships. We can't line up the fact that Pastor Mike tonight had an Acts 1-8 update displaying for you the interconnected relationships. The church universal. The reality that the Spirit is working. The Spirit is working and He works through interconnected relationships. You know, the Spirit cares about unity. Acts chapter 5 teaches us that with Ananias and Sapphira, doesn't it? They lie. And the connection, the relationship is broken and so the Spirit, the Spirit jealously guards that reality. Um, just, uh, just by way of illustration here, um, we, we read about uh, Pho- Phoenicia and, and the reality that uh, Paul stopped there. Don't take your Bibles because of time, but in Acts chapter 19, we learn that uh, during the, the gospel, excuse me, Acts chapter 11, we learn that the gospel is making its way out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. Right? And uh, Phoenicia is one of the places that, that, got, uh, that, that, uh, that those who um, scattered because of Stephen's stoning went to. And there, in Acts chapter 11... They are told, or we are told, that they spoke the word of God to the Jews and to the Jews alone. But then, we, when we move to Acts chapter fifteen, we see that uh, uh, why don't you turn there, uh, just so you can see it. In Acts chapter fifteen, in verse three, there is a remarkable thing that happens, and this is really in the context of the Jerusalem Council, all right? The debate on Gentiles and and, and Jews, and in verse 3, the, the kind of the exhibit of what's happening in Phoenicia shows up. He says, Therefore, being sent on there, that's Paul and Barnabas's way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So, what happens with, with these relationships as, as the gospel moves? And even though at, for a time the word of God just went in Phoenicia to the To the the Jews, what happened between Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15? There's a throng of Gentiles that get saved. And that energizes the church. That sways even the Jerusalem council. To say, this is the will of God. This is the Spirit working and moving. You know, praise the Lord that we have arch. Arch is... Our interconnected relationships arch is the expression from our senior pastor pastor Potter senior now our pastor now our senior pastor pastor Tim the, the expression the outworking of this this necessity that when you are spirit-filled and and you are striving for spirit-filled unity, you can't help but to make interconnected relationships wherever you go and you long to see the gospel move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria unto the uttermost. It's not just something we we keep and guard to ourselves because that's not being spirit-filled by any stretch of the imagination. So, I know I'm loud, but thank you church for investing in our way of maintaining and, 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 and thriving in interconnected relationships. And, and can I tell you, there are times that as a young pastor, I often questioned, why are we spending so much time here and, 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 and so much money here when we've got all this stuff we've got to do right here? Well, I think we're doing it in balance and we're doing it to the, uh, in, in great strength of the Spirit. And I think he's blessing that. And, and he's allowing us to be encouraged, isn't he? Through the, through the furthering of these interconnected relationships throughout. And, and just, just in your own time, just read back through Paul's journeys. And, and you can't help but to see this, this overarching desire for the churches in general, outside of Jerusalem, to be connected, to be supporting each other, loving each other, praying for each other, preaching to each other. And he takes the the collection to the to the Jews from the Gentiles in this whole regard. It is an expression of the Spirit for sure to have such interconnected relationships. And so thank you for investing and for praying and for serving in that way. And for allowing your pastors and your elders to, to, to thrive and, 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 and to work. Those interconnected relationships—they are a spirit-filled necessity unto gospel motivation. And so, as we look at spirit-filled relationships, we also see invaluable relationships. You know, Paul had uh, this team, this we. If, if if you look at the text, Luke keeps on saying we, 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 we. Paul was traveling. Um, he was traveling with people in Acts chapter twenty, verse four. Sopater. Um, the son of Pyrrhus and uh, Aristarchus and Secondus, and and Gaius and Timothy and Tychius and uh, Trophimus, tro- uh, Trof- uh, excuse me. Um, and some may think maybe Luke as well. And so he has these traveling companions, and we even see them interacting in, in the text here. They 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 grieve with those who are grieving about Paul going to Jerusalem, even though that, as they've been traveling with Paul, they've heard this time and time again. They certainly help develop relationships. Because of time, I'm not going to take you back to these verses, but in verse 5, there's women and children that come and follow this missionary team. And how in the world can Paul minister to all these people? Well, I don't think he can, effectively. But seven or eight other people can and so they develop relationships along with Paul. There's joint and, uh, concern and fellowship, and, uh, and they help make uh, connections. Look at, look at verse 20, uh, 16 with me. I don't think we've read this yet, but we we'll probably won't. We'll probably just hit and, and choose here. But verse 16, some of the disciples um, from Caesarea also came with us. So they, they formed such an interconnected bond that people dropped what they did and they followed Paul. Why did they follow Paul? Well, look, they came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were were to lodge. In other words, Paul, we know of Nason over here in Cyprus. He's going to put you up. That valuable, interconnected, invaluable kind of relationships. And Paul had a team. Our invaluable relationships in our context is our beautiful family. The local church it's an invaluable team an invaluable relationship insert pastor tim's first thessalonian series here you can't do it alone you can't be independent and we need each other the uh, the apostle paul needed he relied on invaluable relationships and that could not be more clear from this text so spirit-filled unity as interconnected, invaluable relationships, non-negotiable. And then there's intimate relationships. Because of time, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of gloss over this, but this really has to do with Philip in Acts chapter 21 and verses 8 and 9. We see that uh, Philip essentially ceases his evangelistic, well, not his evangelistic work. But he, he stops traveling. He settles down. He has daughters. The, the text makes it clear that their daughters that are young and that live with him. His daughters actually have a spiritual gift. In, in, in this time in the church that was still going on, they, they're prophetesses. And, and so whatever, whatever they did, they did it together as a family. Why else would Luke bring this up? Luke's bringing up the reality here, I believe, of, of the relationships that exist in a spirit governed, unified church. There's interconnected relationships outside the church. There's invaluable relationships within the church. And ultimately, it all stands on the intimate relationships of the family. But doesn't that mirror what Pastor Tim has been preaching to us in First Thessalonians? You're only as strong, and this church is only as strong as our families are strong. And the various layers that we have of relationships to help us grow and to be unified and to accomplish the gospel mission so that we can stay focused that I might win. And so there's there's intimate relationships. And and you can be sure that wherever the girls went, the prophetesses, (laughs) wherever they prophesy, Philip the Evangelist was right there, bringing them to the Lord. They ministered together as a family, an invaluable Relationship in verses 17 through 26. Now, uh, really, 15 through 26. We we see uh, Paul making his way to Jerusalem. And while we've seen uh, there's a spirit-filled motivation that maintains unity, or preserves unity, or thrives with, or or allows. unity to thrive, there's uh, spirit-filled relationships, and there's also a spirit-filled leadership. That's really the emphasis here, I believe. Uh, how is unity maintained in our church? It's through spirit-filled leadership. See, in 15 through 26, really the, the crux of the, the problem was the unity was threatened in the church at Jerusalem. This is not the first time. I told you in Acts chapter 6, that was the case. In Acts chapter 5, that was the case. But but every time that there's unity problems in the church, you will find in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6, if you want to write this down, Acts chapter 10, where Paul is really, or Peter is really kind of wrestling with uh, giving the gospel to Cornelius, right? Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, every time you see that this unity is threatening the church, you see the Spirit of God heavily ministering to the saints, preserving the ministry. You can write those down and look it up in your own time. Acts chapter 5, 6, 10, and 15. You will see the Holy Spirit plays a predominant role in maintaining and thriving the unity of the church. Unity is the function of the Holy Spirit. It is, the, it is the reality of those who walk in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, among so many other passages in the New Testament. And so, what about leadership? How does this play into leadership? Well, unity is threatened, and, uh, and, and it's threatened here in, in Jerusalem. And really, uh, the crux of the matter is that um, most likely uh, non-believing Jews... Started a rumor that were picked up by by thousands of Jews in Jerusalem that Paul essentially was saying that uh, that Jews needed to uh, forsake or or or, or uh, abolish the law, namely circumcision. It's kind of in the, that's it, that is in the text here if you read through it, and um, and so that ca- uh, caused quite a stir in the Jewish community. In, in Jerusalem. And so essentially there's a, there's a leadership plan that's put into place. And they, and Paul does not disagree with this plan. At least we're not told that. And in fact, uh, Luke really kind of brings brings this full circle when, when Paul is willing to be a Jew, like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to be a Jew when it's necessary to be a Jew. And so Paul undergoes essentially a ritualistic cleansing uh, according to the law. So leadership steps in. The leadership of the, the church in Jerusalem, this time Peter, the other apostles, Paul, the receptor of this, goes along with it. And, 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 And so unity is maintained. But but what is very interesting is, is you see nothing, nothing about Paul's almost secondary passion outside of the gospel here. Remember, Paul's made his way back to Jerusalem, and what was he doing outside of giving the gospel and outside of edifying the church? What was he doing to all the churches abroad? What was he asking for for Jerusalem? Right? An offering. He was making a collection. And what don't we see here at all? Luke, Luke doesn't record it at all. There's nothing at all about the collection. And so maybe, perhaps, Paul brings this collection. He certainly does it to try to, to, try to unify the Gentile and Jewish church together. And ultimately, that's the case that I I see here as to why Paul feels it so necessary to go to Jerusalem. Because he wants to demonstrate that there is only one church. It's not a church of Gentiles and then a church of Jews. It is a church together. And he is trying to make a a physical reality, a spiritual reality, as he, he brings a physical offering together. And gives it to the Jerusalem church. He is hoping that that will be a demonstration of, of the spiritual reality that the church at large shares. And yet, I think we see that that was not the case. And Paul, make no mistake about it, knew that he was going to go to Jerusalem and, and something would happen. I think Paul was trying to demonstrate that it is important, it is paramount, it is worth my life to know, to communicate, to lead, that the church needs to be unified in the Spirit. And so the leadership has a plan, follows a plan, and ultimately demonstrates that unity is essential. So spirit-filled motivation is, is, a, is a reality of unity. Do you have a motivation to give your life to the gospel like Paul was willing to give his life to maintain unity by going to Jerusalem? Now, thankfully, he doesn't call us right, to make that kind of a trip often. But what about right here now? Why am I living? Am I living so that I might win? according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I living so that my life would be unto gospel purposes? Or do I get really caught up in stuff that just doesn't matter? Paul was demonstrating by going to Jerusalem that, you know what? It doesn't matter. And even though I don't really need to go through, and, and, and you'll find the text he even pays for four other guys who are going through a Nazarite vow to... to, to, to to just maintain the unity of the church, to demonstrate that he's not teaching, by the way, that you have to forsake circumcision. It's just not unto salvation. He goes and he's so consumed with motivation of the gospel. What about relationships? Do you give your life like Paul does to the development of relationships? Paul spent 15,000 miles 15,000 miles onto developing relationships. Man, sometimes I'm cutting my grass and I don't want to stop and talk to the neighbor that's out. I need this tremendously in my life. Am I motivated, spirit motivated to develop relationships? And then leadership. Do I give my life, essentially, to follow Paul's example here, do I give my life to the leadership to maintain lead to, to maintain unity leadership here we have a tremendous responsibility to maintain unity so my friends tonight spirit-filled motivation of relationships leadership produces true unity in the church this true unity was modeled for us at a tremendous cost it was modeled for us through paul a tremendous cost that was modeled to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you uh, this night to consider that as we go about this week and celebrate, celebrate that we have spirit-filled unity in this church, that we ought to maintain that, develop that through our motivation of the gospel, through our relationships, and through our leadership here. Father, I pray tonight that you would give us uh, just a, a renewed sense as we Come together, and as we uh, feast on your word, and as we uh, enjoy each other's fellowship, that we would go out this week motivated unto the fact of giving the gospel that we might win, and we'd be motivated to uh, to, to to again kindle and and continue on in the hard work of developing relationships, and that we would. We would continue to pray for as we think about even our nomination process here and, and submit to the leadership of this church as, as, as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, protect us in unity and grow us. In Jesus' name, amen.